I'm going to read to us this morning from Job chapter 38, from verse 1 through to verse 38. And hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. You, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate waste and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? 
Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of the earth stick together? Well, if you take out your corner post, you'll see on the inside of the corner post there's a sermon outline. Uh, Hopefully that might help you this morning to be able to uh, better discern what God has to say to us. In the mid-1990s, a lady by the name of Joan Osborne um, sang a really popular song called One of Us. I don't know if you remember it or if you've ever heard of it. She didn't write it herself, uh, but the lyrics are both profound and incredibly insightful. She says this, If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? And then the chorus, she sings this, if I can put this respectfully. Yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, and yeah, 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 God is good. But what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. It's amazing to hear someone like uh, that sing those particular lyrics on the radio. And I can still remember the first time that I heard it travelling down the road in Sydney. Just imagine if God became a person just like one of us. Osborne asks, what would you do if that happened? And this is on the secular radio. Even more importantly, what would you say? And how might it change what you actually believe? Because a little later on in the song, she sings this. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you had to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? What a profound question to ask. If God revealed himself, would you really want to see it if it meant that you would have to believe it and respond? That's precisely the opportunity that Job receives. And we also have this amazing privilege to sit in on that conversation. But as we come to the end of the book, we can somewhat understandably start to feel tired, especially after the long and complicated interactions between Job and his three friends. And I think if we're honest, we just want it all to be over. If you're feeling that way this morning, particularly about the book of Job, can I just really encourage you not to lose hope? Because this is where the value and the message of the entire book all comes together. When the Lord himself speaks to Job and he gives this 
gives him this incredible opportunity to have this divine audience with the Lord God Almighty. As Derek has explained so helpfully over the past couple of weeks, before that occurs, though, God mercifully sends his servant or his prophet, Elihu, someone who acts like an Old Testament Elijah or maybe even a New Testament John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord to speak. And it's like the light breaks through the clouds of spiritual darkness, which have resulted from, I think, Job's self-righteousness and pride. If you haven't been with us as we've, I think, patiently sat with Job in the ashes, uh, or maybe you've been away and missed the last couple of weeks, then can I just say, here is the key to the book. Job is not suffering because he sinned. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job make that abundantly clear. Job is not suffering because he sinned. But since Job started suffering, he has started to respond in a sinful way. You see the difference? In particular, Job has accused God of being unjust. And that is obviously wrong. Simon gave a really good analogy of this week, of of this uh, point last week in the children's talk. Our hearts are like a container of river water, you know, that has been sitting on the bench and uh, has just all the mud and the muck and the sediment has just slowly gone to the bottom. And when everything is calm in our lives, then the water of our lives looks like that, doesn't it? It looks clear. And even somewhat pure. However, you only have to stir or shake us up a little bit. And what happens? All the mud and the muck that was there all along starts to come to the surface. All of a sudden you realise that these things were there. These horrible things were there all the way along. But they just lay dormant in our lives. Sins such as impatience judgmentalism, harshness, anger, pride. They were always there. But suffering or trial has this way of bringing them to the surface. This is what has happened to Job and it's also what often happens to us. Thankfully though, the Lord doesn't leave us in despair but he sanctifies us so that we can both recognise and repent of our sin. There's this really great illustration of this in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's where this obnoxious character called Eustace uh, is turned into a dragon because he covets the dragon's gold. And in a critical scene, he meets with the lion Aslan, who I think is pretty obviously a metaphor for Christ. And as Aslan starts to remove the dragon scales, Eustace had tried to do this himself, but they kept growing back. As Aslan removes the dragon scales from his body, Eustace cries out in pain. And it's just like what God does with us, isn't it? Through suffering or trial, God exposes all of those very, very sensitive but sinful attitudes and flaws in our character 
and in our lives, which lie dormant in our souls, but with surgical precision, Christ cuts them out. As Eustace says in Lewis's book, it might hurt like the bilio, but after he's finished with us, our skin is restored to what Lewis calls in the book the skin of a young boy. That's what it means to be remade into the image of God by the power of God's Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis says elsewhere in his book, The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts at us. In our pain. Lewis says, pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Then he goes on to say this, and this is the part that's not often quoted. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. But it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Friends, we all suffer. The difference is how you respond. Whether it's in repentance or faith or continued pride and rebellion. But mark this. Suffering will either make you bitter... Or better. Suffering will either make you bitter or better, depending on how you respond. Whether it's by humility and repentance, or whether it's by pride and continued rebellion. Well, after that very long word of introduction, what does the Lord have to say to Job? In some ways, it's quite simple and straightforward. Anyone can really understand it. But if you stop and reflect on what it means, it will completely change the way that you look at life and in particular, how you will view the Lord. I wish I had the artistic ability to visually represent this, but imagine the 10 points that I've listed there for you on your sermon outlines as what they call a mind map. Each point could be represented by a picture going around in a circle to represent the hour positions of a clock. And in the very middle of the clock is this central truth. The Lord reigns, whereas you, Job, do not. The Lord reigns, and you and I do not. Over the course of God's entire speech in the next four chapters, God will ask Job almost 70 questions. Job had wanted to question God. But when he finally gets the chance to do so, it's God who will question him. The famous atheist playwright, George Bernard Shaw, once blasphemously complained about what the Lord says to Job. This is what he says. He says, quote, If I, care, if I complain that I am suffering unjustly, it is no answer to say, Can you make a hippopotamus? But not only does Shaw demonstrate his own simplicity, 
as to the spiritual significance of what that particular creature represents. And we'll get to him in a couple of weeks. But he also fails to take into consideration the divine nature and awesome power of the Lord God Almighty over everything. You see, Job has arrogantly wanted to challenge God about how he is running the world and especially how he can allow all these terrible things to happen to him. And in so doing, Job says that God has a case to answer, that God must even answer him and justify himself. In the 13th century, there was this king of Spain known as Alfonso the Learned. You ever heard of him? I hadn't. Nobody's really heard of him, I don't think, because he wasn't actually that very smart. But he once had the audacity to say this. Had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Oh, really? How incredibly arrogant and proud. But I think we all harbour similar kinds of thoughts. It's just that we're not as bold in expressing them. Until that is, we suffer. Because how easy is it then to rail against the Lord at why did you allow such and such to happen? Why have I gotten sick? Why hasn't a particular family member or loved one become a Christian, especially when I've prayed for them for years and years and years? Why do I have to continue or wrestle or endure this particular difficult situation? Why haven't you answered my prayers the way I wanted you to? You can see how easy it is to resonate with Job, can't you? It's all too easy to lose hope and to lose faith. Well, this week we're going to look at the first part of the answer to which the Lord or God Almighty himself gives. And I'm going to run through these 10 points very quickly. Rather than exhaust or overwhelm you, I hope that they give you an inspiring picture as to just how glorious and mighty the Lord God Almighty is. So as the Lord himself says to Job, brace yourself and listen to what God has to say. Number one, he controls the principles of existence. As the builder of a house, God himself laid the foundations of the universe. And as such, it operates according to his principles and in keeping with his design. This point alone should be enough to answer Job. And in verses 8 to 11, he talks not just about his sovereign power over the sea, but the parameters he's, he has set, I think, for the existence of evil. The sea in Scripture, if you're not aware, is often the place of chaos. And everyone in the ancient Near Eastern world recognised that it would often have deeper spiritual meaning than just the place where you go to get wet. Because it's not just talking about the Lord's power over the ocean, it's what scholars refer to as the Lord's power over cosmic geography. It's also why, if you are familiar with the book of Revelation, it talks about how in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no more sea. Because evil and sin will be defeated once and for all. There will be no more place of chaos. 
Following on from this, God alone is responsible for the punishment of sin. No mortal being like Job can grab the earth by the edges and shake out the wicked. No more hiding in the shadows. God has the ability to shine the light even to the darkest recesses of the world and of our lives. We might think that we're better than God in enacting vengeance, but the truth of the matter is, isn't it, that we're not. We are finite and ultimately impotent to the righting of wrongs. How often, as we've seen in the book of Job, do the wicked prosper? And they do. The, the, the world doesn't operate on a strict principle of karma. Fourth, we're all slain, pun intended, by death. We don't know the point of death or where those who have perished dwell. God does. Instead, we see but a fraction of the whole. A tiny thread behind the cosmic tapestry of God's plan. Just take the truth of point five, the power of illumination, as expressed in verses 19 to 21. God says to Job, what is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. There is a holy sarcasm to God's words here, which would be funny if they weren't so serious. It's just like the argument the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 when defending God's sovereignty and salvation, he says this, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does the potter, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? It's a profoundly humbling thing to truly know and accept your place in the universe. But we all have to come to a point where we realise that pieces of pottery have no right to question what the potter is doing. As I've mentioned to you a number of times before, when I was at uni uh, in the States, there was this poster up on the, the administration block board. It was a Christian university, so they could put this up. There are two truths in the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you are not him. <laughs> I was struggling with this particular truth. <laughs> Uh, particularly the truth of the gospel. And, and a friend of mine said to me one day, do you know what your problem is, Mark? You want to be God. Her question really stopped me in my tracks. I said, no, I don't, Jen. And she said, yes, you do. And you'll never be at peace until you accept what Jesus did on the cro cross and stop trying to save yourself. She was absolutely right. And while I obviously knew it was wrong, I really did want to be God so that I could remain in control. Like King Alfonso, I, I foolishly thought I could give God some really good ideas on how to run the world. How stupid and dumb. Because what I really needed to do was acknowledge that I was blind 
and that I needed divine illumination to be able to see. To give you an idea of how small and insignificant we are, just take consider point six, the place of the wind. Are there any of us who can really control the weather? It's hard enough just to try and work out an accurate prediction. And yet, the Lord stores up hail like an army commander stores up bullets. There is nothing which is outside of his power or control. Or what about point seven, the provision of life? Who is it who is really in control of the weather when the rain or the hail comes? We might give, you know, exotic sounding names like El Nino or La Nina, which simply means in Spanish, little boy or little girl. But the Bible tells us that our Heavenly Father is the one who is in charge of all of these things. Which also means that we have a special responsibility to look after the creation he's entrusted to us as his stewards. Following on from this is point eight. And the fact that God alone controls the precipitation that comes from the heavens. You've got to really love the beauty of the metaphors which God uses here. We read in verses 28 to 30, Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become as hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? By the way, it's a good reminder that the language in Job is poetry and therefore not to be taken literally in the scientific sense of the term. Some people, I think, stretch the language, especially in the book of Job, to say things that it clearly wasn't saying or ever really intended to mean. For instance, back in chapter 37, verse 18, we read how God makes the skies as hard as a mirror of bronze. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a solid disk over the earth. It's a metaphor for God's judgment. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the curses for Israel, if they disobey and they reject God's word, it says this, The sky above your head will be bronze, and the ground beneath you will be iron. In other words, the Lord would withhold rain, and the crops would not produce their fruit. It's not saying that the sky and the soil would become two different types of metal. Well, in the same way, here in chapter 38, the Lord is described as giving birth. That just as a woman's waters break when she has a baby, so too God is described as being a life-giving mother giving birth to rain. The truth, once again, being no one on earth can do that. We can't deliver rain or hail or dew. We are completely at the mercy of whatever the Lord God Almighty decides to do. How much more then with the positioning of the stars? We can observe their movements, but none of us can affect them. The Lord knows all the laws of heaven while we're still discovering them. Those who study these things will tell you how little they understand regarding how the universe works. So who are we to talk back to God? We basically know nothing in comparison to him. 
But everything the Lord is saying here culminates in verses 34 to 38 where he talks about the perfection of wisdom. Uh, Take a look in particular at what the Lord says in verse 36. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? This is something which the Lord himself can and does do for mankind. For those who fear him, as we saw a couple of weeks ago from the book of James, we only have to ask and God gives this to us freely. He not only, think about this for a second, he not only rules over the entire universe, but he gives us the ability to know how to function properly within it if we acknowledge him. So where does all of this leave us? Well, I think it should really lead us to God's throne in heaven, which we read about a little earlier in Revelation chapter 4. The very centre of the universe where everything and everyone who has ever lived comes to worship. Did you notice the unique characteristics of the four living creatures who are said to surround God's throne? It sounds a little bit weird at first, right? The first is like a lion, the second is like an ox, the third is like a man, and the fourth is like a flying eagle. But here's the truth of what John is seeing. Each one of them represents a creature who reigns or who rules over a different aspect of God's creation. So the lion is the king of all the wild beasts. The ox is the chief among the domesticated animals, the one with the most power. Men, and I include in that men and women made in God's image, are lords over the creation which God has made. And the eagle is the master of the skies, who soars above all and sees all. You see? Each one of those creatures, though, even though they reign in their their, um, different spheres, each one of those creatures worships one who is higher than themselves. They have the wisdom to know that God is infinitely greater than who they are. We read this in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Revelation. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now there's two truths that are said there. We're not only created by God, we're sustained by God. The next breath you and I take is a gift from the Lord God Almighty. God only has to snap his fingers and we're gone. That's how wise our God is. Won't you fall down before him too in worship? Did you know that the early church used the image of these four living creatures for none other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Because they recognised in him the awesome theological truth that God had come to earth. God had become like one of us. The four Gospels were often pictured like this. The Gospel of Matthew would often have the cover of a lion because they recognised that Jesus was presented there as a king from the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
The Gospel of Mark would have the cover of an ox because there Jesus is presented as a servant, one who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he's like an ox. The Gospel of Luke had the cover of a person because Jesus is presented throughout that Gospel as the Son of Man. And then the Gospel of John, which is completely different to all the other Gospels, it has no parables, it has no exorcisms, uh, there's lots of things that are unique, it talks mostly about the divinity of Jesus, and so they represented him as an eagle because he was the divine Son of God. In Jesus, though, here's the point. You see all of these incredible truths, these four different aspects come together perfectly. And it's also why it's so incredible, but in the next book of Revelation, if you have your Bibles open, have a look at Revelation chapter 5. Because John looks up in this vision and all of a sudden he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And where is this lamb? It's standing in the middle of God's throne. And he's encircled by no less than the four living creatures. And what's more, Jesus is described as not only occupying the spot where God alone sits, but of also of having the very attributes of God. Of having seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits. Don't get bamboozled by the imagery here. It simply means this. Jesus has divine strength, or what horns represent. He has divine, perfect sight or wisdom. He sees everything. And then finally, you might go, what's the seven spirits about? He has divine being. There is nothing in God that you don't see also in Jesus. He is the fullness of God. Now, it's, it's hard not to get carried away and, and overflow with passion at this point, especially when John says that he heard everyone in heaven singing the words of a new song. But let me give you a sense of what they're doing in heaven right now and how they're saying it. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. You see, because the Lord Jesus Christ reigns, we too who are believers in him, we too share in that victory. There's going to come a day where you and I will reign on the earth. Isn't that incredible? What if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. They're the questions Joan Osborne asks, but in Christ Jesus we have got gloriously answered because if you've seen him you've seen the father even more by his blood shed for you on the cross you and I have forgiveness of sin and as a result 
eternal life. One of my lecturers at college, John Chapman, used to say to us when he was ever asked, have you ever seen God? He'd always say, no, I haven't seen him, but if I was at the right place at the right time, I would have. And they look at him going, well, where was that? He goes, well, outside Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Jesus was walking in the flesh. There was one day where I was at a beach mission down the, the coast, and I could see there was this group of teenagers who were being really troublesome and wanting to disrupt the program of what we were trying to run. So I walked up to them praying, Lord, help me to say the right thing in the right way that might be able to have a conversation with them. And as I walked up, uh, the leader of the group said to me, have you ever seen God? And I, I stopped and I thought, what do I say at this point? I said, no, I, I, I haven't. And the whole group laughed. He goes, well, how, how do you know it exists? And then I, the thought came to me and I said, well, do you have a brain? And he goes, yeah, of course I do. And I go, well, have you ever seen it? <laughs> and it was quite funny as his girlfriend laughed and said, oh, that was really good. Wait a minute, that was against you. You should stop. If God has come to earth and you see him in Jesus, won't you fall down before him in worship? Won't you give him glory and honor and praise for he who did everything for you? Who alone is worthy to take the scroll from God the Father's hands and open its content? Let's come before him now in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for speaking to us through your word this morning. It contains so many glorious truths that we just can't possibly comprehend or contain everything that it means. We have seen this morning but a glimpse of your power, but a glimpse of your sovereign control. But Lord, we pray that you would take us deeper into yourself and you'd reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you've said. But Lord, we love you only because you first loved us. You sent Jesus to die for us. And as we come to your table now, we pray that you would take us deeper into the mysteries of Calvary. And how you died and how you were slain so that we might be forgiven. Lord, thank you for all of this. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.